So Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered to him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to him, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate was wishing to satisfy the crowd. He released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put on him. They began to salute him. Hail King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufius, to carry his cross. When they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. They decided what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. When they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him uh, to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him from with him to Jerusalem. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should hear he had already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled his stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, long ago, in many times, in many ways, you spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, you have chosen to speak to us through your son. I pray that this morning that we will hear your words through the words of Jesus, that we will see Jesus and what he does even this morning is coming from you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, just after World War II, uh, many nations were trying to put things back together to try to return to normalcy. Um, of course, here in the States and, and elsewhere in England, but even Germany uh, itself was then divided in, in trying to put the pieces back together to return to normal, to make sense of all that had happened. And in the midst of this time, there was a Lutheran pastor Uh, His name was Gunther Rutenborn, who lived in West Berlin, and he had actually come up with a play that he put together that was to try to help the people make sense of the events that had occurred. And it is in this play that he put together, it was rather interesting. Some of the actors, they would get very much involved, and they would actually come down off the stage and enter in with the crowd and begin to converse back and forth with the audience, which is a bit unusual. And there were key roles that were played. It was trying to rediscuss, as it were, the people of Germany. And so there was, one of the roles was a, was a steel worker. He worked in the steel industry there. And there was also a, a soldier who fought and a housewife who was busy trying to keep her family together during the war with the, with the food rations and to help the, the war effort. And and it's interesting, during the first act, these players come down into the crowd and they, they're discussing the Holocaust. And they're and they're saying, Were you aware? Did you know? Did you know about the events that took place? Did you know about the Holocaust? About this the concentration camps, about the uh, millions of Jews that were killed and murdered. And they would go up and down the aisles. Did you know? Did you know? Did you know? And even as they're asking themselves, each of them says, we had no idea. The housewife says, I was so busy with my family. We didn't know. We were just trying to survive the war. The steel worker, I just would go to work every day. Even the soldier, no, I, I didn't know. And then the curtain comes down in the first act. And then the second act, it comes up. And through some more discussion and conversation, it becomes rather clear. Nah, they all knew. Well, the soldier, of course he knew. He was stationed at one of the concentration camps. And the steel worker, he says, well, you know, I was putting together the railroad cars that would haul the Jews to the concentration camps. 
even the housewife. She says, we heard the murmurings in the streets. We knew. They all knew. And so it begins to be discussed, well, what should come of this? Who's to blame? The housewife, she gets to blame, of course, the steel worker. He was the one building the, the railroad cars to get them there. And the steel worker, he blames the soldier, saying, I wasn't there. He was the one who was actually at the concentration camps. And eventually the soldier says, well, no, it must, the blame must always go higher up. So he blames his captain. And they blame the nation's leaders. And eventually the blame goes up and it goes up and it goes up. Until eventually, who's ultimately to blame for all of this? God. God is to blame. And so they declare, with God to blame for all of this, what should be his sentence for this crime, for this heinous act? They determine death. Death will be his penalty. Well, in fact, the full sentence they gave God goes like this. In light of all the suffering that the Jews in Germany had gone through, they said, he must be born a Jew. Uh, He must know what it is to lose a son, that he would eventually be the one to lose his friends and his family, that he should be one who suffers in great agony, and that eventually at the end of it all, that he should die like a criminal by execution. What was it that Rutenborn was trying to do here? What was he trying to do through this play? He was trying to say that as, as awful as the events of the Holocaust were, Still, at the end of it all, more dreadful is that God would come and bear the judgment of that event on the cross. That, my friends, is the final conclusion that this chapter in chapter 15 comes to. That the man hanging on this cross is more than a man. And we find here in this chapter that it is answering the ultimate question that this whole book has been trying to tease at. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Why has he come? What is his mission? What's the whole purpose of this? Who is this Jesus? And by extension, why has he come? And driving us here to this key moment, chapter 15, I'm going to highlight three sections here that we will see unpacked. First, we'll see the questioning. We'll see the questioning. There's two questions for Jesus, followed by two questions for the crowns. So the questioning. And then we see the crucifixion. And then at the end of it all, we'll come finally to the conclusion. The conclusion of who Jesus is. So first, the questioning. I want to recall to you real quick, if you've not been with us, just where we are at now in this moment. Jesus and the disciples, they've come down from the Sea of Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And at this moment, just a week ago, Jesus comes in. He's hailed as the Messiah. Uh, he's honored as the, the, the uh, heir of the throne. He's the son of David who rides in on the donkey. And then... Uh, he begins to enter into the temple scene and he clears the temple of the, 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 the rubbish and the trash and the, and the things that are basically clogging up the ability for people to come and truly worship God. And he begins to teach, to give the word of God. And then this swiftly leads to Jesus being betrayed by Judas. In the last chapter in 14, we find that Jesus ends up facing off with the Jewish religious leaders. So recall, it was with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders there. And then now here in chapter 15, if chapter 14 was the religious Jewish leaders, and now he's going to stand before the non-religious Gentile leaders. And that's where we're at here in 15. And here within the first 15 verses, 
we find that there are four questions. Two, as I said earlier, are for Jesus and then two for the crowds. And it's key to look at each of these in turn. The first question is, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies with an interesting reply rather than just simply saying, yes, he says, you have said so. It's a bit of a cheeky way of trying to say, well, the truth is on your lips. In other words, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Then the next question that comes to him is, well, do you have no answer, no defense? Say something, speak for yourself, defend yourself. To which we must recall Isaiah 53 verse 7, where we read that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Why? This is further driving home the point for us. Jesus is not here coming to defend himself. He's not saying, hold on, time out. This is all just a big mistake. No, he's come for a purpose. This is part of his mission. And he's coming and he will not fight to be released from what God the Father has decreed should take place. So the two questions for Jesus have been answered. And there's two questions for the crowd. Pilate asks, do you want me to release Jesus? Pilate is perceiving that this desire to rid of Jesus is really ultimately out of envy. Envy is what is driving this. They don't truly have any evidence of wrongdoing at this point. And so Pilate, desiring to slip out of this decision, he decides to invoke a custom by which, during a time of celebration or festival, the Jews could decide to release the prisoner. Knowing that he had a man named Barabbas in his grip, surely the people wouldn't want Barabbas over a violent murderer and an an insurrectionist released. And they would rather to have Jesus released, right? Not Barabbas. But to his regret, the people shout, what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And a great irony, Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, literally his name means son of the father, He is released so the son of the father would take his place. And Pilate then knowingly, he's releasing a guilty, vile man in place of an innocent one. Now, we know a little bit about how the Roman court system would work. Typically, a charge would be brought forward. Uh, The accused would then be questioned. There might be uh, an exchange back and forth. Followed by the governor, he would leave and deliberate with some others. And then he would be back with the decision to be followed by a quick and swift execution of the sentence. But here, Pilate is baffled. Pilate is taken aback by this whole scene. Unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack all of the reasons why Pilate is in this tension. But we know what he should have done. We know exactly what he should have done. Rather than pragmatically looking for ways to keep peace, Pilate should have put his foot down and said, this man is innocent. Stop this. Knock this off. Go home and finish the celebration. Go home and forget this. This is a a joke. You're just doing this out of envy. That's what he should have done. He should have said, cease. Knock this off. Forbear. Forbear. Stop. During the 4th century in Rome, the Colosseum was a horrific place of entertainment. Movies like The Gladiator come from this uh, time and place. There was a monk 
uh, who was a cook back home in Asia, but he had come to Rome to visit. His name was Telemachus. And he had come to visit, and he was brought along with the crowds and found himself there in the Colosseum with the gladiators, unaware of what was going on. But when he realized what was about to happen, that two gladiators came down into the, to the arena, and they were about to fight each other to the death, Telemachus walks down from the Colosseum edge into the arena where he should have never been, and he begins to shout out, In the name of Christ, forbear. Now the crowds were cheering and they couldn't quite make out what he was saying. And so the crowds hush and he says, in the name of Christ, forbear, stop this. And then one of the Roman uh, soldiers out there, one of the gladiators, he takes his shield and he knocks Talimachus to the ground. And the people cheer and then they shout, run him through. So one of the gladiators pulls out his sword and stabs Talimachus. And then while Talimachus is bleeding there on the Colosseum floor, his last known words were, in the name of Christ, forbear. Then a man standing up in the crowd, he sees this and he is so disgusted by what happens, he stands up and he walks out. And then a woman gets up and she walks out, followed by a family that leaves. And eventually, after this entire scene, the entire Colosseum is left empty. And this whole act is what ceased and stopped all of the gladiator, you know, entertainment that happened there at the Roman Colosseum fights. Why? Because one man stood up and said, in the name of Christ, forbear. Pilate should have said, in the name of this Messiah, this Christ, forbear. And then it should have ceased. But then in the name of pragmatics, in the name of so-called peacekeeping, he partook in the killing of the Prince of Peace. And this brings us to the fourth and final question. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. They did not answer his question. What evil has he done? There's no evil to be mentioned. They just shout, crucify him. Crucify him. And it is with this understanding that we now come from the questioning to the crucifixion. It it is interesting. I don't know if you've really thought about this much, but especially in Mark, it just literally says, and they crucified him. That's it. There's, There's not a whole lot of unpacking of what that is. The bloody, gory details are left out. Uh, But any recipient of this initial gospel would have been well acquainted. Jewish, Gentile, it didn't matter. Somebody just said crucifixion, all of the bloody, gory details would come to mind. You knew what this entailed. You knew how ugly of a scene it would get. But Mark, even a bit that backdrop, wants us to key in on the surrounding pieces that are going on in the narrative here. Look, look, look for example, how others view him. This is interesting. See how others view him in verses 31 and 32, these mocking comments. The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, ah, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. If you step back and you're listening to these words, there's some serious irony in this. They they say, "Come, come on down. Come down from the cross. Oh, he will come down from the cross. They say, oh, you who've saved others, save yourself. Oh, 
Friends, he's going to save himself through staying on the cross. And in the midst of this, he will truly, not just heal a sick man, he will truly save the people. Oh, they say, oh, if you come down from the cross and we see you then walking on, we will see and believe. The irony is so thick here. Jesus is seen and people believe. Paul talks about this. He says, well, he appeared first to Peter and then he says, and then he appeared to the 12. But then he says, more than 500 saw this Jesus. And they not only saw Jesus walking after being dead, they believed the good news of the gospel. Oh, the irony here. We're not meant to only see this mocking irony here. There's also, uh, we're supposed to connect this whole scene to judgment. The judgment language is also here. I'm hoping one thing that has been clear is through our time in Mark, I'm hoping that you see as I've been trying to connect that even though Mark may have been primarily written to a Gentile audience, there's also a lot of Old Testament allusions that are picked up along the way. Uh, That Mark is keying in on things that have happened before as they point forward to this key moment. Now, darkness on the land is exactly one of those things. It's a key piece in Old Testament allusions, specifically um, as it relates to the Passover scene. Recall that light is bound up with holiness. Uh, Light is bound up with truth. While darkness is bound up with sin, darkness is bound up with evil, and it's also bound up with judgment. During the Passover scenes that we see back in Exodus, it is kind of interesting. Uh, All the plagues are going through before the Jews are released, and then there's one final plague before the actual Passover act, which is a plague of darkness. Why did the darkness come upon the Egyptians? Because God was actively judging them for their sin, for their iniquity, for their evil on the Jews. And so too here, we are to remember, during this final Passover week with Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross, the darkness that comes in is judgment. Judgment has come down from God. And friends, this is, no, this is not some sort of eclipse that's going on. No, no, no. Those are five, ten minutes. This is three hours of darkness, of heavy darkness come upon the land. And it's judgment. But on who? It's not judgment on the people. It's judgment landing on the man, on the cross. This is where this judgment falls. Look at this in verses 33 and 34. When it was the sixth hour, that is noon, it had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamath Sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. Jesus is not in his final moments grieved that he has lost connection with his friends or family. He's not crying out that he's lost a relationship with the twelve. He's not saying, My twelve, where did you go? He's not grieving or upset at this moment. It doesn't pain him to lose his comfort, his status, his pride, even his joy or his life. He's not crying from the cross. My life, my life is being torn from me. Friends, what is he crying out? In this moment, he has lost the father's love and connection and relationship. He's actively being forsook. You know those moments you hear either in movies or sadly sometimes in real life where a father turns to a son or a daughter and says, I'm disowning you. You're dead to me. I'm forsaking you. You're not part of this family. You're not my son. You're not my daughter. 
you're dead to me. Jesus, in this moment of darkness and judgment, literally is becoming dead to the Father. The perfect love and connection that they have is being severed. Why? Because darkness of judgment that you and I were supposed to receive is falling upon him in this key moment. Jesus here is separated from God so that you, you who believe, you who believe will not be separated from God. Look, Jesus is crying out here that he is separated. And yet in this moment, the temple curtain is being torn in two. To which you should probably say, well, time out. What does that really have to do with anything? Why all of a sudden do we care about the temple? We're talking about over at Golgotha and the cross and what's going on there. Why this temple being torn or the curtain being torn to in the temple? What does this have to do with anything? Just remember in this moment, they're, they're, Mark is piecing this together so that we will see actively what is going on. As Jesus is being torn and separated from his father, the temple, the place where people would come in to worship God, the place where people would come and offer sacrifices, the place where people would come up and pray and, and have their connection with the Lord. Well, they never really had full unhindered access, did they? There was courts. There was areas where you could be. It would be like the church parking lot. And then there's the, you get closer as you get into the foyer or auditorium area. And finally, there was a spot that is the inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. It would be like someplace upstage while we all back here, we cannot go into the Holy of Holies. And there would be this curtain that is down. It's large. It's very thick, very, very thick, heavy material. And it's 30 feet ish by 30 feet. And it blocks the holiest God from the unholy sinful people. Because if the curtain were to come down, the holiest of of God would consume us. We would, we would die instantly in judgment, but the curtain was there to, to block us from that, from being consumed. But in this moment, in this moment here in Mark 15, as Jesus is up on the hill, as Jesus is being torn in two, as Jesus is receiving the judgment, the temple curtain is being torn in two. So that you and I now have unhindered access to God himself. Friends, Jesus is being separated from his heavenly father so that we who would believe will no longer be separated. That means, Christian, you do not need to pray to Mary. You do not need to pray to other saints. You do not need to perform good deeds. You do not need to prepare a perfect sacrifice. Because this final act has meant that for all those who believe and trust in Christ, you have instant, instantaneous access to God, your Father. If you find yourself in sin, run right to him. If you find yourself in desperate need, he's right there. There's nothing blocking you. And he's listening. And he cares. And he wants to hear from you. And all this happened in this key moment in verse 37 where Jesus utters a loud cry and he breathed his last. He's dead. Jesus, friends, we believe bodily, physically, died. And now having heard the questions that have been brought forward, now having seen the crucifixion, we come to this important moment in the book of Mark. It is the conclusion of the Roman centurion. Interestingly enough, many uh, believe, and I think with good evidence here, that Mark was writing to a primarily Gentile audience. 
This letter was primarily intended for Romans, for Greeks, not primarily for Jews. And I think there's some, there's some weight behind this. For example, Mark spends more time than any other of the other gospel writers trying to explain Jewish customs because they would have been less understood. Mark also uh, presents the most positive outlook of Gentiles. And I think it's fitting with this then that the most clearest statement about the identity of Jesus is on the lips, not of one of the apostles, not of somebody who's Jewish, but it's on the lips of a Roman centurion, (laughs) a Gentile. Now, I know some of you here who are with us this morning, maybe you say, well, Christianity may be true, but I could never be a Christian. I mean, you don't know my background. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've been a part of. I think Mark would say to us this morning, au contraire. If there ever was a man who would be hardened against the gospel, who would be hardened and not receive it, it would be this guy right here, this Roman centurion. Why do I say that? Friends, this man, he was not just battle-hardened. This man had not just been through war, which can harden you in, in, in ways against the gospel. This man right here, he is torture hardened. This man's very job is to inflict and act pain on people for hours and days until they slowly die. This man would have been perfectly at peace to crack his soda can, to pull out his sandwich from his lunchbox, while just 15, 20 feet away, a man is screaming in agony for days. This man here is hardened against God. And if there ever was a man, well, and also he's Roman. He's very much Roman on his own coins that he probably had in his satchel there. He, he had the coin that would bear the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus. In other words, imprinted on his own coins, it says, Caesar is the son of God. If there ever was a man who's going to ignore this Jesus, if there ever was a man who was hardened and should have just laughed and not cared, it would be this man right here. And yet, and yet, this centurion, he looks up. He says, oh, an innocent man dies. He says, an innocent man who is known for caring, for loving, for other people. Who was known to have said, I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. An innocent man who was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This centurion, he looks up and he says, I don't believe that this was just a man. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. Here, this Roman centurion has had his heart pricked. A light has shone into his darkness, revealing just who this Jesus is. And as Mark closes this scene out, showing the Roman centurion, he's not the only one here in this moment. I think this is going to be key. Uh, Look at verses 40 through 41. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And while he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I think it's key for us to see that not only are the unlikely Roman centurions turning to believe in this Jesus, but I think also we're to see women are some of the first there to witness this and believe This And I'm going to speak 
a whole lot more to this next week. Uh, but I just bring this up now uh, to catch this, and we'll focus more on that next week. But uh, here, these women witnessed and cared for Jesus through the crucifixion, through the death, and through the burial of Jesus. Chapter 15 is revealing to us here this innocent man, this son of man, the king, came to trade places with sinful man, to be forsaken, so that you and I will never have to be forsaken. And therefore, friends, he is indeed the son of God. Listen to how Isaiah 53 again puts this, as it talks not just about these people in first century Jerusalem, it's talking about us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, why would Jesus not prove his innocence? Why, why wouldn't he speak up and say, cease this, let's stop? He wouldn't dare say anything that was going to get him down from the cross. He wouldn't dare stop the Father's plan to actively save you with his own life, to give his life for yours. Because bearing our shame, bearing our guilt, bearing our iniquities, our pride, bearing your evil and your sin was the very reason he came to save you. And I think as we pause, if you've read through chapter 15 and you're reading through this and you're just thinking, okay, here it is. These are the facts. This is what has happened. And as a Christian, you always want to be saying, now what do I do in response to this? You're saying, how do I apply this in my life? I think as preachers, it's easy for me to say, well, uh, okay, I think, uh, I think we should go with something simple here, like read your Bible more. Uh, do, I, do I then say to you, ah, pray harder. Pray like you mean it this week. Or do I say, because of what we've read this morning, I want you to be kinder to your family. I want you to be nicer to your friends. I want you to stop and help somebody change the flat tire on the side of the road. I think, friends, those are great applications for many other passages. But I don't think they work here at all. I think the application and how this ought to land on you this morning and I, is that I think Mark wants us to come to the conclusion that the Roman centurion came to. I think the call on you this morning is to believe this. I, I, I think this should land on you to where you say, I don't, there are many things I'm not sure about. There's one thing I am sure about. Jesus is fully man and fully God. And he died in my place. I think you need to reflect on this and believe it. You cannot be a Christ follower. If you don't. And so Christian, I ask you, when was the last time that you let this scene here come to your heart and mind? When was the last time that you sat back to let this be what you reflect on and let it mold and shape how you go about your day or your week? I'm, I'm not sure where you're at. Maybe you come in here this morning in pride and you're saying to yourself, well, really, I'm kind of a decent person. I, 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 may, I, I think I'm doing pretty well. And maybe you are. But Christian, remember, Jesus had to die for your sin even on your best days. Your very best days warranted this. Maybe you come in here this morning. On the other hand, you're on the whole other opposite end of the spectrum. You come grieved about your day. Maybe somebody at work 
or somebody in your family or even here in the church has rejected you. I want you to hear this. Jesus doesn't reject you. He came to die because he's chose you. Maybe in your life you've lost control over a situation. You hoped things would have turned out differently. But here every day you're racked with the, the issues that you're facing. I want you to remember, Christian, that Jesus died so that your future would be secure in him. So that whatever the next 5, 10, 20 years holds, that doesn't matter. The eternity is sealed for you. Maybe you come here this morning and you feel alone. You're not sure if anyone cares. Christian, don't forget, Christ was torn so the veil would be torn so that he could send his spirit to you so that you will never truly be alone. Remember that Jesus faced the cross your greatest, so that your greatest conflict, your greatest need will be met. Jesus, friends, was forsaken so that you and I will never have to be. So church, again and again, I'm calling on you. Remember the gospel. Remember this. This is so foundational. This shapes everything we do. It all pours out of this moment here. Remember that. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of the distractions of life, sometimes things seem to us to be everything. They can seem to us to be the most important And we become gripped by them. I pray, Lord, that we would be gripped by the cross. That we'd be gripped by the fact that in love, you died taking our place, our shame, our guilt, and our sin. Where else do we have to go but to you? And so again, this morning, we come remembering, thankful for your gift of sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.